0: Welcome to a special episode of Women with Balls. The nature of work has changed since the pandemic, and in some cases exposed to weakness in the experience of working for women. With some companies eager to get back to business as usual, women are now demanding more from work, and they are leaving jobs in unprecedented numbers to get it. How can businesses create a working environment that supports women in work, and with that, offer opportunities to expand their career potential? Could they benefit from the flexibility that comes from a hybrid office policy? At the same time, it could present challenges for those with caring responsibilities or those who may wish to stay at home when other employers would happily go into the office. To discuss all of this, I'm joined by an expert panel, uh, Caroline Noakes, Conservative MP and Chair of the Women and Equalities Committee, up Sadiq, Labour MP for Hampstead and Kilburn, who is both Shadow Economic Secretary to the Treasury and Shadow Cities Minister. And finally, Fiona Cannon, who is the Group Sustainable Business Director for Lloyds Banking Group. And this podcast is kindly sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group. So thank you for joining me today. I suppose to kick things off, I mean, Caroline, obviously you've done lots of work on this when it comes to select committee, how how these things particularly affect women. I mean, we are mostly out of the pandemic and we not have to look back on it for too long. But just to set the scene, how has the nature of working, especially for women, changed, if at all?
1: The select committee did a massive piece of work on the gendered economic impact of COVID. And what I have really been keen to push following that is to say, look, let's learn the lessons. Let's take a really hideous experience and find something that we can take from it that's positive. So, look, flexibility, hybrid working, the ability to work from home, the phenomenal way in which we saw women rise to the challenge of homeschooling, childcare, caring for elderly parents, whilst holding down a job at the same time, was absolute evidence that you can achieve it. But when we start looking... At how we make flexible working the way forward in the future, it has to be proper flexibility, not just assuming that flexibility means part time or working from home. It's about hybrid models. And I always say to everyone, this isn't just good for women, this is good for everyone. And it's one of my big disappointments that the government hasn't yet brought forward an employment bill that would embrace that.
0: Fiona, I think before we get onto the politics and Karen's point in the employment bill. Obviously, you're coming at this from an industry perspective, Lloyds Banking Group. I mean, have you seen the nature of work changing for staff? Have there been changes as a result of the pandemic?
2: I mean, I think it's interesting. Lloyds has done a lot of work on what we call agile working for a very long time and had set up something called the Agile Future Forum about 10 years ago now, which was looking at the future of work. And and to Caroline's point, that was really around how do you make sure that the needs of business and the needs of employees were met and there's a real kind of sweet spot if you like in a Venn diagram of those overlapping circles and and that was really around you know reimagining the world of work so so to Caroline's point this isn't just about reduced hours part-time working it's really looking at, at how do you really change the way that you operate how do you restructure roles so looking at more things like job sharing things like for example we got one part of the business that actually there's a real peak in demand for work between january and april so people there work longer hours but then have shorter hours over the rest of the year so they can go off and do other things and so it's it's been really creative and so in a sense we took that into the pandemic and actually what we did at that point was allow people to work whatever paid them fully despite whatever they were doing in terms of childcare care and, and everything else I think one of the things that struck me more broadly, if you look across industries, one of the disappointments for me is that actually, I think we've gone a little bit backwards in thinking about agile working, because the debate is all about home working or being in the office. And actually, it seems to have kind of forgotten all those other imaginative things that we talked about before. And I think the reason why women after the pandemic or during the pandemic and after the pandemic have really enjoyed working is because they've been able to to manage things and it's that flexibility they want in the workplace as well where that does mean reimagining restructuring roles and, and thinking about it in a slightly different way so so my worry is that the pandemic opened up this opportunity to really change things but if we're not very careful, he's actually going to close it down again.
0: And, and just on that point you know, and I certainly have fallen into the trap of thinking about, you know, at home or in office, partly as a result of the pandemic. So when we're talking about agile working and any examples you can give just to kind of explain it to listeners.
2: So one example from another company entirely, actually, is, is KPMG, and they obviously have a very big tax office and one of the things that they do same as what we did in lloyd's in effect is that that, you know they're really busy for a certain period of the year so they pay their people throughout the year but they expect them to kind of work longer hours during a certain fixed period but then they're able to go off and and do other kinds of things so so that's one example of where and, and actually they've seen an increase in productivity as a result of that kind of activity and so i think people need certainty about what they can can do because then you can plan around that but I think the other things that work really well for us is around job share and that's my point around restructuring roles so that you have two people doing the same role which allows much more of that flexibility it works for the employer because you know you have two people there's always you actually get more for your money than you would with just one person and so that I think is a real opportunity for organisations to kind of work in a different way but I think as I say I think part of the problem actually more broadly from the pandemic as well is that women just exhausted if I'm honest and you know Caroline talked about you know some of the issues that came up and we've got this big thing people keep talking about the great resignation and if you talk to someone like John Amater who's an occupational psychologist he talks about it as being the great rejection which is actually that people don't want to work for an organization or a line manager who won't allow them to work in the way that makes sense for them and I think that's what we're starting to see and it's not just women it's other people as well but I think women in particular because of the needs that typically that historically they do most of the childcare or caring responsibilities that's what we're starting to see.
0: Chip how big a factor do you think that childcare point is because ultimately if you look you know the fact UK childcare costs are some of the highest in Europe and in a way it was a double-edged sword in the pandemic because there were some workers who actually found that working from home did liberate them slightly in terms of being able to be at home in terms of doing some of the childcare while working, but also others felt they were a bit trapped by it and limited what they could do. So do you think that is a big issue when it comes to, I suppose, adapting the workplace?
3: So uh, Katie, just before I come on to that, I just wanted to make a point that both Caroline and Fiona have discussed. I just wanted to reiterate that I think the impact and legacy of the pandemic when it comes to the experiences of women at work is a bit more complex than it was portrayed in the media. And actually how Parliament had initially predicted. So it definitely helped to shift the focus away from always feeling like you had to be chained to your desk, always had to be at work. And I looked at some of the research that the University of Birmingham Business School did. And it did say that during COVID-19, the stigma around flexible working, it was broken, actually, and this should be celebrated. But it didn't bring about the revolution in flexible working that we might have hoped for. And I think both panellists have mentioned that. I just wanted to add my two pence to that by saying that I looked at the research that the TUC have done, and they've done quite extensive research in this, that apart from home working, all other forms of flexibility remained at low levels since the outbreak of the pandemic. So the proportion of employees, for example, using flexi-time has stood still. The number of people using annualized hours has gone backwards. So it is a bit more complex than it was painted out initially. Coming to your childcare point and bearing in mind, I have two very small children, so I know the cost of childcare in the UK. Obviously, I am on an MP salary. My husband earns a good wage, so you know we can't complain. But the cost of childcare is really bad in the UK. And you can tell that by the amount of casework I receive from people who are struggling to make ends meet. Many parents who are, especially middle earners, just can't cope. So the average cost of a full-time nursing place for a child under two has risen by a shocking £1,500 over the last five years. So prices are really out of control. And it isn't just pricing parents out of care. In my previous role, I was shadow minister for children in early years, and I saw how the education provided by early years is absolutely crucial for child development. I'm sure most people will agree with that. But even pre-pandemic, the children on free school meals, they were almost five months behind their peers. So as childcare costs continue to go up and more parents are priced out of care, this attainment gap will just continue to grow. So it's about boosting learning and social development, but we can't ignore the fact that we're in a situation where childcare is super expensive. And also, if I'm being honest, not fit for purpose... Because of the lack of hours in the morning or the lack of hours after work as well. So I, I'm sure other people will feed into this, but that's been certainly been my experience personally, but also from all the casework that I receive.
2: Yeah, we've noticed that as well, I think, in terms, I mean, childcare is a is a real barrier, I think. And so it means that some women and men, but mostly women, you know, end up doing fewer hours than they would actually like to because they can't afford the cost of putting their children into full time. And for me, it feels like it's a real infrastructure issue. And we talk about infrastructure a lot, but childcare doesn't ever seem to be one of the infrastructure issues that we focus on. And it feels like to me that it should in order to be able to help parents get into the workforce effectively.
1: And we had it this week, didn't we, as part of the levelling up and regeneration bill, Stella Creasy putting forward her amendment regarding childcare as infrastructure. I signed that amendment. I mean, it didn't eventually get pushed to a division, but I think it's an important marker. We have to start looking at childcare, not not just as childcare, not just where are we plonking our our young people, but actually how is this empowering women economically? How is this enabling them to go out to work, to take promotions, to get better employment, as well as the really important issue that Tulip mentioned, which is, of course, how are we helping the most deprived children keep up with their peers? How are we making sure that they get the best start in life and we know the stark statistics around the most deprived two-year-olds needing the additional hours that they get because otherwise they go off to primary school literally months behind development of their their more affluent
3: peers yeah and in terms of women it's not just bad for women it's bad for the economy and I think Caroline's pretty much just said that but let's face it like women are the primary caregivers and they are the people who have stopped from working so of mothers say they had to work fewer hours than they would like to because of childcare costs. And this rises to more than half of women in households with an income of less than £50,000. These are statistics I looked up when I put forward the 10 minute rule bill on flexible working. And I looked into this quite hard because I felt like I had a lot of cross party support. People like Laura Ferris from the other side signed it. Lots of MPs, actually, from the other side signed my 10 minute rule bill. But it was one of the things where I had to make a case for why it was bad for the economy, not just for women. And there's an estimated 1.7 million women who are prevented from taking on more hours of pay due to childcare. And I pointed out to all the Conservative MPs that I convinced Mm -hmm. to sign my 10-minute rule bill that that was costing the economy 28 billion pounds every single year and that's the statistic that seemed to hit home when I said it. And that's why I think I had some support from the 10-minute rule bill. But as you know, Katie, in Parliament, 10-minute rule bills very rarely become legislation, although private members' bills do. And Yasmin Qureshi's Flexible Working Bill, which I was a part of, has become legislation now. And I think that will make a difference.
0: Caroline, what have you found, I think, are, are the other issues when it comes to barriers to career progression if we put, you know, children, child care aside? Menopause, of course, is one. And we're hearing, you know, people who choose to leave the workplace. What have you found?
1: Well, look, we did a lot of work around menopause and the impact that had on women not taking promotions. Some 900,000 women lost to the workforce altogether. But I think there's a real problem about perceptions of women and I'm going to say over 40 at this point because we know that they are very significantly represented in sectors which were really knocked about by the pandemic whether that be retail where we know there is a very high proportion of women employed and the shape of our high street has changed out of all recognition and From my perspective, I think there needs to be a real drive to recognise that a woman of 40 has the best part of another 30 years of working life in front of her. And we keep being dismissed as if we're washed up over the hill. And the stark reality is, is that we can't afford to overlook that really important sector of the workforce who have so much to contribute, who often are the experienced, the talented, the multitaskers of this world who we really need to make sure get the retraining opportunities. And I always say to government ministers, look, do not only focus training opportunities on the young. We have to make sure that there's retraining opportunities that are not just in sectors which perhaps might stereotypically be directed towards your 24-year-old men with sharp elbows. And I keep pointing at the challenge that there is around startups for women, access to finance. The reality being that if women were starting and scaling businesses at the same rate as men, it would contribute an additional, I think, 250 billion to the economy.
0: Yeah, and, and on that, Caroline, what do you make then? Are you encouraged by what Rishi Sunak's trying to do with the Department for Education? Because there's obviously a lot of talk about retraining at, later in life and you know, not just starting at age 20. Or do you think that's a, a slightly different thing?
1: No, I think that's really good news. And I think we can't reserve education for the young. And I keep telling everybody, you know, you're a long time old. You're an even longer time dead. You know, we have to make sure that people make the most of opportunities and not just reserve them for, for your... Sharp-elbowed twenty-five-year-olds. So I think that's great news at the DFE. I would like to see the Department for Work and Pensions embracing it with the same enthusiasm.
0: Jude, what do you think on that point? of I suppose you know, what more can be done to kind of encourage later training? Do you think that, that we do have a problem with sharp-elbowed twenty-somethings?
3: <laughs> well, I work in politics, so I've seen that firsthand. So yes, I mean, I, I turned forty this year, and I've become. More aware of what Caroline is saying about age and about how once you've reached a certain age, it's just like, well, should we try and find some fresh new talent? And it's like, well, actually, a there's lots of talent that is old if, you, if that's what you want to call it. One of the things that's really struck me, Katie, is the fact that in my current role as Shadow City Minister, I've looked quite a lot at the research from the FCA and women make up less than one in four of all promotions in the city. And it gets a lot worse when it's women over 40, actually. And that's one of the things I'm sure Fiona will have a lot to say on this, but the city has been a real eye-opening experience in terms of going into the financial sector, seeing the lack of women at the top, but also the lack of women who are considered for promotion and the age discrimination. So it's intersectionality, it's your gender, it's your age, And then, I guess, added to that is your ethnicity as well. I'm sure Fiona will have a lot to say about this as well. Fiona? I mean, it's certainly true that
2: the age thing is a very big issue on a number of perspectives that we've seen. So we have a Women Returners programme, for example, which is about bringing women, older women back into the workforce. And, you know, to be able to absolutely go to this point about making sure that the opportunities are there. And available to them. And, and what you get from those women, of course, is the experience, the kind of enthusiasm, the kind of second lease of life, if you like. And so that's been a really important piece of work for us. But there's no question that we are also the sponsor of the FTSE Women Leaders Review. And we see that through when you look at what's going on across the, the FTSE 100, which is that older women are increasingly becoming a kind of, you know, a group that that needs special attention, if you like, and being considerably older than you, Tulip, I can say personally that you kind of get that sense of we need fresh new talent in because you've got to a certain point, rather than you know, kind of really valuing the experience that women, older people, full stop, can bring to the workforce. So, so I think it's absolutely a real issue in terms of the city. I mean, it's an interesting point because I started work in gender equality thirty five years ago, and it was actually the banks that were really forward thinking, the retail banks, I should say, were really forward thinking on this because they were the ones that had so many women, you know, working in the front line, if you like. And so that that kind of, it started from a really good good perspective. But I think what most organisations have, remain to have, especially in the city, is this kind of pyramid, if you like, so women at the bottom and, and men at the top. And the reality is, the only way you really change that is this really hard work. And the big, powerful intervention that I think we made at Lloyd's was to introduce a public goal to increase the number of women in senior management positions, our top 7,000 roles, to 50% by 2025. And actually what we've got now is rather than the pyramid, we've got a column. So we're actually at 40% all the way up the organisation, including on our exec committee and at 45% on the board. But you have to want to do it as an organisation. That sounds really straightforward and obvious, but it's really hard yards work because you have to, we've done things like, for example, have waivers for shortlists that don't have women on them at all levels of the organisation. The last two roles at, at the very senior levels of organisations are interviewed by our chief exec. There has to be a woman on the that shortlist. And so you have to put some really quite stark interventions in place in order to unlock what is basically a system that doesn't really work for women because it's based on a kind of old-fashioned model of of work where someone's at home normally the woman and someone's in the office normally the man so you have to really put some kind of very specific practical things in place to force that change and those are some of the things that we've been we've been looking at organizationally
0: Caroline is that something you have found just in the sense there are some sectors and industries that are just going to be better catered on the flexible working particularly for women points than others perhaps with the way they're designed but also just in terms of I suppose how much pressure they're under to adapt compared to others so I was actually going to speak up for the city because I was really pleased to have been
1: invited into the city on International Women's Day this year to talk with Standard Chartered about their research they did on the menopause, which produced some of those really scary stats around 25% of women considering leaving work altogether, 50% not taking promotions. And we all know that that knocks on to the gender pension gap as much as anything else. So not only do women take career breaks to raise their children, but if they take a break around about the menopause or they don't take a promotion, then they're just economically disadvantaged compared to men. I was going to actually give a big cheer to Lloyds, who, from my perspective, having been chair of the Women In Equality Select Committee for the last two and a half years, I have seen the effort Lloyds put in. They really work at it. And I think Fiona absolutely summed up, it takes drive, it takes determination, it takes commitment right from the top to say, we are going to bring about change. And even in the short time I've been in this role, I have seen a wide range of organizations really embracing the changes that they need to make to make sure that you get, as Fiona described it, the column, not the pyramid. You know, I'm fed up with people pointing out, well, we've got lots of women in the organization. And then you look and they're all at the lower levels. Um, I could point to some very high profile ones where there is a very distinct pyramid and it's not good enough and it's not because of a lack of talent it's because there is in some cases an institutional blindness to the talent of women it's about having the right chap for the job if i get told that once more oh, we just want to get the right chap in i think i'll scream but i i don't think the financial institutions are actually doing that badly i think what i've would have say i've observed from them is a real determination to make things better.
3: Just to chime in quickly about this representation at every level, it's one of the things I get asked quite a lot when I go into schools to speak. So in my constituency, I'll go into schools to speak. And actually, it's I think the question and answer sessions are the best part of my job, because you never know what a child is going to ask you. So but one of the questions I can get asked about is female representation in politics. And the fact that the Labour Party, we haven't had a woman prime minister, they'll always ask that. And What I say to them is that, of course, it's important to have a female prime minister. It's very important to have figures at the top who are women. But one of the things I noticed in politics is if you look at the really important roles in all aspects, so whether it's the chief of staff for a leader's office, whether it's chairs of select committees, whether it's the speaker's office, whether it's the person who's running the election campaign... These are very, very important roles, whether it's the economic advisor to the leader of the opposition or to the prime minister. These are really, really important roles. And how many women have you seen in these roles? I raise that because I feel like we talk about the top figures sometimes, but they're very influential roles where I've never seen a woman in politics. And it's something that we need to start talking about not just about the number of women MPs in Parliament, but how many special advisors do you have who are women and how many chief of staff do you have who are women. I just think it's, we need to start changing the narrative around that as well. And I think we need to start changing the narrative and focusing on what women
1: can contribute and what we bring, not just the negative side of the hassle that we take and the abuse that all MPs get. I think it's really time that parliamentarians started championing What differences that we can make, and that Parliament and our democracy makes. I sometimes have my head in my hands in despair that we seem to be being dragged down. Our whole democracy gets dragged down to the lowest common denominator. And you know, I would look at Tulip as somebody who's on the opposite side of the house to me, but someone who has done fantastic campaigning job on a whole range of issues. And we really need to start, I think, celebrating the achievements that women in politics have achieved the the things that we've done and you know I look at the work that Tulip put in over the last oh, too many years to see Nazanin released from Iran you know that was just something that was the sheer dogged determination of a backbench MP doing their job and nobody
3: ever celebrates that and we really should. Thank you that, that's really kind Caroline I think one of the things I have found is that it is about the media really in a sense because The media will talk a lot about the vicious fights that we have between each other. There hasn't been much reporting on, for example, the flexible working bill that Yasmin Qureshi bought in in private members bill. I mean, if you had seen the cross-party support in the room from conservative male MPs, and north londoners like myself to people you know up north and everyone from different regions coming together that will never get reported in the papers because it's not very interesting and not very sexy but sometimes we do all actually work together
2: yeah and actually i've i have seen that as well from a company perspective i mean if i look at some of the other things that we do for example around domestic abuse i mean caroline you know we've worked with you on that with jess phillips you know with with a whole range of people and and there are lots of issues and both men and women from cross-party on those big social issues, I think that there's a real sense of working together, which is really refreshing to see, but as you say, not often reported on.
0: Just to get back, I suppose, to what we were talking about in the introduction of this podcast, which was how can you make you know your workplace more agile, flexible, in a way that flexes to help women progress and get those top roles and also feel as though they can stay in the workforce in a long time. I wondered if you could just go around and perhaps tell me what you think, if you could do anything right now, what would be the one thing that you think would have the biggest impact on that?
2: I mean, I'll kick off. I mean, I think one of the big things around how do you make the agile working really work across an organisation and support anybody who wants to work in a different way to get on is actually around recruitment. I think part of the problem is if you get agile working whilst you're in work, and you stay in an organization, then you can probably move around a little bit. But if you want to move to another organization, if, you, if you're if you working in an agile way, only 12% of roles externally are advertised as being agile. And so that means then that people get stuck in an organization often, and you don't create that movement that you need for the economy. And so I think one of the things that we now do is 97% of all our jobs are advertised at all level, any level of the organization, they're advertised as agile, both internally and externally. And that has meant that the pool of people that we get applying for roles is much bigger than it would otherwise have been and so i think there is something very strong in that space around making sure that you are open to agile not just for people in the organization but bringing them in as well
3: tulip sure i think it's for me around flexible working the main thing to say and it sounds cheesy but i want it to become a right for people rather than a perk just for a few people so for me it's the legal requirement on all employers to offer flexible arrangements in employment contracts and also to specify them in job adverts because then women tend to apply for the jobs but the other thing that i i suppose from my work of dealing with women who've had their requests for flexible working rejected my thing would be if employers are going to reject someone they've got to give a genuine reason because at the moment you can basically have a very general reason why a woman shouldn't be granted flexible working. And there's not much the woman can do or the person can do. For me, I would want it to be a genuine reason. And if we could narrow that down, I think that would be a huge win. Caroline. Yeah so I think legislation around a day one right to flexible working
1: and it shouldn't just be a right to ask for it it should require a proper explanation as to why you can't have it. You know I'd love to see a national insurance break for job sharing. At the moment if you've got two employees sharing a job you're paying the national insurance twice and actually I think why not work out you know HMRC are clever enough to work out a way around that. So I think that can make a real difference and actually promote job share. I think it was Fiona said, you know, you get two for the price of one, don't you? You get much more input in a job share than than just from one single employee. So I think that's absolutely the way forward. But I just look at my own staff. The pandemic demonstrated to all of us that you could be really flexible and adaptable. It didn't matter where you were to do your role. There was no drop in productivity. And I would just love to see more employers look at that and go, it can work.
0: Thank you, Caroline. Thank you, Chilip. And thank you, Fiona.